Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Welcome. This is The Interpreter Radio Show. I'm your host in studio, Martin Tanner. With us, we also have, by phone, Hale Swift and Brent Schmidt. The Interpreter Radio Show is brought to you by the Interpreter Foundation. Its mission is to support the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints through scholarship, by providing accurate information to the public about the Church. The Foundation also makes free to everyone on the internet this scholarship on a wide variety of topics. The Interpreter Foundation defends the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints against misunderstandings and criticisms. It is not, however, owned, controlled by, or directly affiliated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and any material that the foundation publishes and any information on this radio show are solely the responsibility of the authors and of the foundation. Our interpreter radio show this hour is also sponsored by Kimber Academy. Kimber Academy is a K through 12 private school, which unlike public schools keeps God in the classroom. Kimber Academy is a special place where Teachers guide students toward faith and morality with quality, engaging curriculum. At Kimber Academy, every parent's voice is heard. In Utah, Kimber Academy is located in Linden, Utah. There are many other locations throughout the United States to find out if this is the right place for your students. You're welcome to call the director, Jessica Bianco, at 801-382-7158, 801-382-7158, or go to KimberSchool.com on the internet, KimberSchool.com. With that brief introduction, we are excited to present to you for our Come Follow Me during the first hour, Revelation chapters 15 through 22, the lesson of which is entitled, He that overcometh shall inherit it, shall inherit all things. This is the last of the New Testament curriculum for Come Follow Me in 2023. Next week, we will be starting to record our Book of Mormon Come Follow Me resources for you. Let's start off and, and gentlemen, uh, Brent Schmidt and Hale Swift, welcome, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here. Let's uh, invite Hales to lead us off with chapter 15. We've got so much material to cover. Let's jump right in. All right. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Yes. Okay. So chapter 15 in the book of Revelation introduces us to an unusual scene. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Probably not the best day at the office. (laughs) And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. Uh, We get some help from... Uh, modern revelation and in, in interpreting these images. In Doctrine and Covenants 130, we learn that angels reside in the presence of God on a globe like a sea of glass and fire, where all things for their glory are manifest, past, present, and future, and are continually before the Lord. And we're informed that this earth in its sanctified and immortal state will be made like unto crystal and will be a Yerman summons to the inhabitants who dwell thereon, whereby all things pertaining to an inferior kingdom or all kingdoms of the Lord will be manifest to those who dwell in it, and this earth will be Christ. So this seems to be showing us uh, the the state of the earth in its glorified and sanctified and immortal state. 
Uh, in the ensuing verses, there is some discussion of a temple in heaven. And after that, I looked and beheld the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So given that these events are yet future, they necessarily pose at least a minor conceptual challenge to those who might be tempted to imagine that God no longer has any notion of temples or designated sacred space, apart from perhaps Jesus or the assembled saints when they have the Holy Ghost with them. And although these are an important part of the temple concept, it's clear there's also something more concrete behind it. Uh, anciently, incense was associated with temple worship and smoke generally uh, with the presence of God. As we read in Second Chronicles 5, 13 through 14, after the temple in Jerusalem had been dedicated, it came to pass, sorry, it came even to pass, as the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever, that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. It seems fairly clear uh, that in reading the scene in Revelation, the readers expected to recall this earlier manifestation and understand the event in this heavenly temple in relation to the previous events with this earthly one. So with the revelation, with the temple in Revelation, it says, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. And similarly, in this incident in Chronicles, Second Chronicles, the priests couldn't stand to function in the temple um, because it was too filled with the glory of God. And that seems to be roughly what's happening there. That is my Revelation 15 report. Thank you. Brent, anything to add about chapter 15? There are, we're going to see seven angels in the next chapter as well. So seven is a special number. It just means completeness. And it seems in these verses that, that Jesus and Heavenly Father are in control and they'll make everything complete, which is how chapter 16 ends that I'll be covering in a minute. Sounds great. The only thing I wanted to add br briefly here is in verse 2, you've got this uh, re-reference because it, it's found early in Revelation to the beast and his image and the mark and the number of his name and, and I'm presuming that the prior come follow me talked in detail about the number of his of his name but the mark of the beast is an inter interesting thing here w one of the ideas is that is that um, th for a Jew the mark of God upon you was often something that um, is is described at in, for, for example, um, Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through, through 26. Um, people would often have a, a little amulet on, on the back of their hand or around their wrist or around their forehead. And often the one that they chose was these, these wonderful words um, that, that you have from Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 through 26. Um, that talks about, may Yahweh bless and keep you, may his face shine upon you, may he be gracious to you. Yahweh, Yahweh lift up your countenance upon you. Th th those kinds of things. Though, as a matter of fact, those are actually the earliest known Bible verses found in the Ketif Hinnom uh, amulet scrolls. And, and so this would be the mark of a true follower of God, and the mark of the beast would probably be something similar that uh, showed allegiance to the devil and, and the dark side that, that was uh, 
worn around the wrist or or the the forehead and, and or or maybe it was some other kind of mark but but the point is just as the righteous had their own mark of god the evil side had had its own mark of the beast or or the bad side okay chapter 16 just to add on to that and in chapter 16 we see here that there is a it says here a vial upon the earth and it says in verse 2 and there was a noisome it says, and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. And we see in verse 1 that the voice comes out of the temple again, and it's going to pour out the, these vials. And the, the Greek word is maybe not as strong as wrath of God. I think it just can mean the, the intense emotions of God. Uh, it can mean anger, punishments. But maybe wrath is a little Calvinistic here. But in... Roman times, a lot of times, the mark would just be tattooing. And we know that the, the Celtic people that the Romans a lot of times captured from the north, they would tattoo themselves. Actually, Julius Caesar calls them the blue people because they use mm -hmm. usually blue ink. And in Roman times, they would usually tattoo people's right hand and their forehead. And we see that the mark of the beast on the, the forehead and the hand and other places in Romans. So uh, it, we know that... Uh, in a lot of these Greek temples, when people are going to the gods to be healed, for instance, if you go to the Temple of Asclepius in some of these museums, maybe at places like Epidaurus or even the British Museum, you see people who wanted to have their, their tattoos removed from their face or their hand, but they weren't really able to. So probably a, a Gentile who's reading this would think, oh, they are involved in this terrible situation where they... The, their master is is Rome or or something else instead of Jesus, and we know that when Constantine becomes the emperor, so and he becomes sympathetic, and then he's later baptized in, in the, the Christian faith. He actually outlaws tattooing. So if you study Roman law, he says that our bodies are temples, and so we never want, we don't want to deface the, the the temples of God, and so. Pretty much since then, in the Christian tradition, they've gotten rid of tattooing as the mark, in some ways, of the beast. Prophets today also encourage us to to not mark up our bodies. Yep. Anyway, in, let's see, the second angel, verse 3, poured out his vial upon the sea. It became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. So, in, in some ways, this might be a little bit like Moses, where Moses also turns the the rivers and sea to blood. It's in the Old Testament. And then the third angel pours out his vial upon the rivers and fountains. And and again, they become blood like in the Moses section we have. The angel of the waters says, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus. And it says, For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And we, if we read closely in Third Nephi chapter nine, Jesus also gets really upset with the the Nephites who did the same thing, and he talks about the blood of the earth coming up. And so we know our Savior takes his prophets and, and their safety very seriously. And then there's an altar, and it says, "Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are their are thy judgments." So. This is, I think, a warning to the people to, to not hurt or talk ill of his special prophets and servants. And there's a fourth angel. He pours out his vial upon the sun, and this was to scorch men with fire. And it mentions here another sin that people sometimes are involved with in a, a worldly system is we want to make sure we always give God glory. In the Doctrine and Covenants, we learn that this, the Lord is not happy or pleased with anyone who doesn't acknowledge his hand in all things. And the next the next one it mentions here, there's full of darkness. His vow was upon the seat of the beast, and the kingdom was full of darkness. And and then they blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains. And they don't repent. So these are some things that I think before the second coming, if we can stay away from these really big sins, treating our bodies as temples giving God the glory, being, uh, being nice to prophets and not 
blaspheming. And then it gives us another thing here in verse 12. The, the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the river there was dried up. So this is a very big and rushing river. And it mentions here there is a... Uh, there's there's some uh, unclean spirits. Three unclean spirits come out. They work miracles, and so we want to be careful. We don't watch the the miracle magicians, but we are focused on Jesus Christ. And, and then it mentions here that eventually these these spirits will not be popular. Well, they'll see his shame. And then he gathered them together to place in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon, which in Hebrew is just Tel Megiddo. Armageddon's a a Greek version of that name, but it just means this this battleground that's been a place of hundreds and hundreds of battles in ancient times. And then finally, the seventh angel pours out his vial upon the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven again from the voice or the throne, saying, "It is done. It is finished." Maybe he's in the way. I think it's probably it is finished. It comes from this verb gignomai in Greek. But there were lightnings and thunder. And a lot of the symbols actually seem to go back to some of the things that happened before the first coming of Jesus Christ to the Americas. And some prophets have said, if we'll just read the Book of Mormon, we'll see the patterns that will happen before the second coming. But it mentions here Babylon is going to eventually fill the, the fierceness of his wrath. I guess maybe that's that's uh, his, uh, his anger. And every island fled away and the mountains were fled upon. <coughs> And there fell upon men great hail. And so there's all kinds of punishment. Hopefully we'll keep the commandments. We'll watch the prophets not, not speak bad about them, not hurt prophets. We will be careful with what we say, how we treat our bodies. All these things will get us ready for the second coming. Hales, any additions to chapter 16? Well, one quick one. Verse 15 says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. This is, of course, the same imagery as you have in the Garden of Eden when uh, Adam is, is found naked and the Lord gives him garments. But it is necessary for those who have been clothed to remain so by remaining true and faithful to their covenants lest we be found naked before the Lord in our sins and uh, shrink with shame before him. Perfect. Thank, thank you. Let's jump in because we have so much to, to cover. Let's, let's move, move, move on in, unless there's another comment here. Uh, chapter 17 is, is kind of a fascinating one. This is... A chapter that talks about Babylon, that John, who, who was receiving this revelation, sees Babylon, who is described as, as the mother of all harlots. And, and so this is a really bad description. Harlots obviously did not have the highest esteem, uh, <clears throat> to, to put it mildly. And, and so... Babylon here is not just a really bad place that, that has done horrible things to the Jews from, you know, from their destruction of, of Jerusalem in, in 587, 588 B.C., clear on down through Jewish history. It, it's been a metaphor for evil and bad. So it's a real place. It's also a metaphor for bad. It's a little bit like Sodom and Gomorrah and saying, wow, this place is like Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, it, it's, it's saying it's a really bad place. So what's being described here in chapter 17 is about the evils that, that are found in the earth. And we could we could have various ideas about whether these evils are found at the time this book was written, towards the end of the first century, maybe the, the beginning of the second century of the Common Era, or is this something that you will find in the future, or, or per, perhaps both. 
which mm-hmm. whichever decision you come to, what you find here is that one of, with the opening verses of, of chapter 17, one of the seven angels who has emptied these bowls or, or vials comes over and says, come on, I'm going to show you how God's going <laughs> to punish this bad harlot who sits on many oceans. And this many oceans is sort of a key that there's evil everywhere. It's not just, not just in one location. And it talks about in verse 2, every king on the earth has been with this harlot. And, and, and so the, the implication is that all of the kings are corrupt. There's evil everywhere without the earth without the earth and and that this is the time when the destruction is is going to come about verse 3 talks about the the woman sitting on the red beast and the beast is covered with names that were an insult to God and so here's this imagery that Brent was talking about er earlier where uh, in this case, you have writing on the beast that's an insult to God. So, so this is kind of the, the mark of the beast, the, the evil alternative to God. The woman's dressed in purple and scarlet, which would show, this, show wealth and earthly, um, you know, a lot of earthly wealth. She has jewelry, robes, precious stones, pearls, all these things that would make her high and mighty and of great uh, stature in in the world. And on her forehead, another mark of the beast, if you will, or or the equivalent, says, in, in essence, I'm the great city of Babylon, the mother of every immoral and filthy thing on earth. That's kind of kind of what it says if if you paraphrase it. And so this is imagery of all the evils that are going on in the earth and what's going to happen to them well we have imagery of of seven heads and seven horns and and seven kings and excuse me ten horns and and then these are more references to the kings and kingdoms of the earth that are doing evil things and finally in verse 14 the lord of hosts the king of kings is going to um they're going to make war with with the lord of hosts and the king of kings but ultimately what's going to happen is that um as we shall see they're not going to prevail but but at this point in time um they, they influence all of the earth. And, and so this is sort of a description of how evil everything has, has become. There's my short little summary of chapter 17. Other comments about chapter 17? In verse 7, it just talks about the the seven heads, which is the the perfect number, but as the adversary likes to mimic things, he, we don't quite have the right other numbers. So we should have seven and then seven and seven, but we have ten instead. And in Hebrew, ten uh, ten is an interesting number. Also for different other groups, it is, but especially when it's paired with this idea of horns. So horns is a a symbol of revelation. If you ever see Michelangelo's David, you'll notice that he has horns on his head. And horns is the the, the Latin word and the Hebrew word also mean they both uh, have this connotation of revelation. So he doesn't have actually seven in terms of revelation, this complete revelation. It's it's a couple few numbers off. And so the adversary has his own revelation, but it's not perfect like our Heavenly Father's. Hales. I just wanted to comment on the question you raised. Is it, uh, is it talking about an ancient conflict, a modern conflict, a universal conflict? And my thought on it was a lot of times you can exp- 
expound upon the universal conflict through particular instances of the contemporary conflict, right? We know that Satan always and everywhere sets up his kingdom in opposition to that of the Lord. And so watching any particular instance of that, or even an archetypal one, informs us to a considerable degree about any other instance of it, because it's the same kind of a thing. That's all. That's great, great comment. Let me mention one other thing about this concept. If you were to go back to the end of the first century CE or, or the beginning of the second century of the Common Era and ask the people who were reading the book of Revelation, is this for your time or the future? I don't think you'd find any or maybe very few would say, this is a really cool book, but it's all about the future. I think they would have found it pertinent and relevant for their time. But we also know through many of the statements of Joseph Smith and other church leaders that it pertains to our time as well. So just because it had great um, uh, importance for the first and second century Christians and spoke to them about events of their day does not mean that it can't also speak to those in our day about the same kind of a thing. And, and I think I'm just saying in a different way, Hales, what, what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, let's go on to, um, I guess we're on chapter 18 now, and I'm going to go through this one quite quickly. Um, chapter, chapter 18 is, is where... You've got this horrible world uh, for the context. There's evil everywhere. It talks about all the kings being corrupt. And then chapter 18 talks about another angel coming down from heaven and having great power. And Babylon the Great is fallen. In other words, this horrible place that's become a habitation for the devils. What's going on here? Well, uh, the good people, the saints, are, are called out of Babylon. And so you, you have, as we find during our day, in which our faith strongly believes to be one of its commandments and mandates and uh, revelatory duties, is missionary work, which is to, to find the good interspersed amongst all those uh, evil people in the world and to bring the gospel to them. And, and something like that's being described here in, in chapter 18 where um, the, the, good, the good people are, are called out. We also have judgments on, on the kings of the earth. We also find in verse 11 the merchants of the earth presumably this is a metaphor for the rich and wealthy. Um, all, all their wonderful treasures of the earth in verses 11, 12, 13, they've got lists of all their fancy materials and, and fancy, um, fancy, fancy items. Those all come to naught. And how does all this happen? Verse 17 says, in one hour, they come to naught. I'm not sure you could put a stopwatch on an hour. What, what this, to me, means is that it happens really fast. This is not something that takes a long time to happen. It's something that happens very, very, very quickly. And... Um, I could say more, but I will leave it there. Any other comments? Let's start off, uh, Pales, with you. Any more thoughts on Chapter 18? Not much except to say, flee Babylon. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Brent, other Not, thoughts? On in verse 21, it, it just talks about a, a great millstone. And, and it, it's, uh, 
this mighty angel takes up a stone like a mighty millstone and says, Thus with violence shall the great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. So if you think about a great millstone maybe you know, sinking into the sea, it will go down really, really quickly. I, I know in ancient trees, if you, you study how they're, they're made, they actually drop bronze ingots into the ocean. They drop really, really quickly. But it, it's really important that we realize that the world's glory and, and, and sparkle and, and brilliance will, will fade away just that quick when our Savior's here and all the noise of the world is, is removed. Great. Thank, thank you. I, I, that's, that's such a great chapter, and it's sort of, in a way, the pivotal point, but people don't spend a lot of time on it um, because they move on to things like chapter 19, which is the second coming chapter. So, uh, Hales, chapter 19. All right. So, uh, chapter 19... There's some good news and there's some bad news. And we'll get to all of that. <laughs> Let us, starting at verse 7, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. So the, the wife of the Lord mentioned here is the church. And this is arguably, in every era, what the Lord is waiting for, if we were to say, what is he waiting for? When will we as a people be ready? When will we be clean? When will we be faithful? When will we be ready to enter into the presence of the Lord and to fully solemnize our relationship with him? Uh, continuing with verse 9. And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This brief exchange in which John almost accidentally worships an angel actually tells us quite a bit. First, angels are people too. Second, they are not to be worshipped and don't ask to be or accept worship, but instead, as do all true messengers, direct worship toward the Lord. Third, uh, the key angelic characteristic is having the testimony of Jesus, and this creates a clear overlap between prophets on earth and angels in heaven. However, it also brings out another key point, which is that based on the equivalent that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, a person cannot know that Jesus is the Christ, but by the power of the Holy Ghost, or in other words, the spirit of prophecy. And so if a person or a people want to claim to know that Jesus is the Christ, as I think we would hope would be the case with all Christians, they must either know because they are the prophets and prophetesses of the living God, or their claim is false. Consequently, any people who wants to claim any relationship with Jesus that rises to the level of knowing logically have to accept the existence of living prophets, including at least themselves. So it, it, it puts the lie to... Sorry about that, my phone fell off. It puts the lie to the occasional notion that prophets and prophecy are done away. Yes, as, as do the uh, two prophets that we read about a few chapters earlier. Right. I'm just <laughs> amazed that people who, uh, who, who, well, you said it well. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. so car carrying on, um, prophets, prophets do often end up in the role of an angelic minister. For example, Elijah, Moses, Moroni. And we understand from Doctrine and Covenants 138 that the faithful elders of this dispensation, when they depart from mortal life, continue their labors in the preaching of the gospel of repentance and redemption through the sacrifice of the only begotten Son of God among those who are in darkness and under the bondage of sin in the great world of the uh, spirits of the dead. So there is a continuing domain of activity and responsibility there, and sometimes also 
um, they're called to minister to mortal persons. For example, we know from Doctrine and Covenants 129 that there are two varieties of non-mortal, non-mortal ministrants that are sometimes sent to mortal folks, namely angels who are resurrected personages having bodies of flesh and bones. Uh, for instance, Jesus said, Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. Secondly, the spirits of just men made perfect. They who are not resurrected but inherit the same glory. Now, okay, the rest of the chapter gets heavy quickly because the next character we see is the Lord riding on a white horse. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. This clearly enough sets us up for a judgment scene, and one that isn't going to be pretty if you're on the wrong end of it. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. This is overt temple imagery. If you'll recall, when Jacob was wrestling with the Lord in another highly temple-relevant scene, several named things happened, right? First, Jacob gets named Israel. Uh, but finally, Jacob asks the Lord an important question. Jacob asks him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. Requesting the name of the Lord seems to initiate Jacob's culminating blessing. Um, but the name, the name of God is an important um, feature in this passage. So continuing with the Revelation passage. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name, just, name is called the Word of God. So another name detail there. And the armies which were in heaven followed upon him, followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, rather different from normal campaigning armies. Uh, and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. So a quick reminder that the rod of iron is identified in Nephi's vision as the word of God. And we've been told that this character's name is also the word of God. So it's multiple, there are multiple images that are, in a sense, conveying the same idea. And we should, of course, require, remember earlier uh, in the Gospel of John that in Jesus Christ, the word was made flesh. He is the word of God. All right. Now, earlier we were told that um, blessed are they which are called into the marriage supper of the Lamb. But you definitely don't want to be on the other end of the judgment scene because the alternative is given in verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. Skipping down a bit, it concludes, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth. In other words, they were slain by the word of God. And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So people can be clean and be invited to the marriage supper on the one hand, or dabble with Babylon and uh, participate as the main course on the other, which is literally for the birds. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> uh, additional comments, Brent? Yes. In some of these verses, for instance, in verse 12, Hales was just talking about some of the temple connections. And in ancient times, we have a, a lot of writings about knowing the, important, uh, the importance of knowing someone's name. And Philo, in this one text he talks about how if you know someone's name that you have a relationship with them and then you even can have power and authority from them and so we we see that that all these really worldly people they don't know the name but uh in verse 12 here he had a name written that no man knew and so likewise as as we attend the temple we learn more about our savior so that we can then have his his help and his power in our lives. Sometimes you see pictures of the Savior with a red robe, and we see in verse 13 that he's clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. 
And so we know that there's some destruction of the wicked. I, I think maybe if you think about it, though, from an eternal standpoint, sending the, the wicked people to the spirit world before the millennium puts them in time out and gives them an opportunity to repent so that they can be resurrected at the end of the millennium, which is where we're going in Revelation. But some of these also metaphors about a rod of iron would at least be understood probably by the contemporary audience as replacing Rome because Rome talked about itself in a lot of these Latin poets like Virgil as the, the kingdom of iron or the Iron Age is what they usually refer to here. But we see that instead of Caesar being the, the king of kings, Jesus is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And we know that the Roman army is very organized. You'll have captains and all these people, but everybody just turns cannibalistic in verse 18. And Jesus is, is really the only real king of kings, and Rome collapses. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned one thing that, that, that made me smile, and that is you, you sometimes see Jesus clothed in a, in a red robe. You, you never see, if there is one, I haven't seen it yet. I'm, you know, maybe I'm just not up on, on LDS art. But have you ever seen a, a painting or depiction of Jesus for the second coming where his entire robe is red and he's on a white horse? Maybe, but he, he's usually in a white robe and he's got a red sash. <laughs> a red sash, exactly. There's some red part of it, right? <laughs> yeah, there's some little... It's, just, it's, it's almost as if LDS artists, just they, they can't quite bear to give him an entirely red robe. And, and I'm not yeah. sure I remember any of them with him on, on a white horse. I, I, the imagery is beautiful. Maybe it's just hard to... Yeah. Depict, there is but. one there there is one painting that I remember was really popular when I was a, a missionary of just Jesus with with mostly a red red robe you can only see him as a, it's a portrait oh yes but you yes, see yes. a little a little bit of red just uh, you know um, shoulders up yeah and, not the full thing. yeah shoulders up but yeah we don't see him on a horse but most of the Elias images just have a little bit of red on them is what I meant to say <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that is a fascinating thing to me. All right, um, moving on, Brent, chapter 20. And, and so in the next section here, it, it says, uh, I saw an angel. So an angel is a messenger in Greek. And this particular messenger has the key of the bottomless pit, and it says, a great chain in his hand. The only messenger, I think, who can do this of Heavenly Father would be Jesus Christ. But and we see that he lays his hand upon the old serpent, which is the devil. So the Greek word is diabolos, which means uh, backs, uh, a backbiter, a gossiper. And then Satan is another title of the adversary, which means a prosecuting attorney. In a, in a he it's a Hebrew word, a persecutor, a destroyer. And then Jesus is able to bound him for a thousand years and throws him into this pit. And so at this point, we know that this adversary has no more power to deceive the nations, it says here, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he'll be loosed a little season. And so we call this the millennium. Millennium just means the thousand years in, in Latin. And it says, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. Probably the thrones would be symbolic of people who are becoming like our Heavenly Father. We see that imagery in section 132 with Abraham sitting already upon his throne. And judgment's given to them. And especially the people who give their life, it could be, I think, metaphorically for Jesus and his kingdom, they will be honored at this point. They didn't receive the, the mark upon the foreheads or on their, their right hands. It says their hands. So we don't want to have any marks of the the world. I think this might just be a metaphor of having repented. And anciently, the the gods of these temples, like Asclepius, are not able to remove marks. Usually, there's a couple people who put up inscriptions to Asclepius because they say that he removed the tattoos on their hands and foreheads. But we know that Jesus really can do that through his atonement. And they're going to be with Christ for a thousand years. So this is a really important section. It talks about the thousand-year reign of our Savior. And the rest of the dead, though, they don't live at this point until the thousand years were finished. So 
we learn in section 76 that they'll be suffering for their sins and they'll have to make restitution. Uh, Jesus tells us in section 19 that if we don't repent, we'll have to suffer, which caused him, even God, the greatest of all, of all to suffer at every, bleed at every pore. But the first resurrection is the resurrection of the, the righteous, the people who receive celestial bodies. And our, pres, our prophet, President Nelson, talks a lot about thinking celestial so we can take part in this first resurrection. Joseph Smith adds a little bit in verse 6, Blessed and holy are they who have part in the first resurrection. And it says, The second death hath no power. So the second death would be out, being out of the presence of Heavenly Father. And we learn in section 76 that the people who go to the celestial kingdom will be able to be in the presence of Heavenly Father. And they'll become priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. A lot of prophets have talked about during the morning we'll be doing also a lot of temple work. And we'll reign with him as we help redeem the rest of mankind that hasn't had the opportunity to progress. And then we know that after the millennium, Satan will be loosed and he'll deceive the nations again. There will be a lot of people who will follow him. And it mentions here that there'll be some, some big battles. But the good news for the righteous is that fire will come down from heaven, verse 9 and devour these people. And then they'll be, if they fight against the Lamb, and then they'll be thrown into a lake of fire and brimstone. It seems this is outer darkness for the adversary and those who follow him. Probably the third of the hosts of heaven and maybe a few of the sons of perdition. And it mentions here there'll be a white throne. And then this is a really famous verse here. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books will be opened. So this now describes the final judgment. There'll be a, some kind of a, a record, a book of life. We know that in John's time, the book hasn't been invented, so it's not going to be invented for another hundred years. And so the idea of, it's called a codex in Latin, where you write on both sides and you bind it in the middle. They do have plates, but uh, the, the Greek word just, I think, has this idea that there'll be written records about our, our actions. And, you know, those might be in all kinds of different forms. I think it's really important, too, we have temple, temple records and family histories and those kinds of things, I think, will help us at the final judgment. And then the sea final will give up its dead. And this word hell doesn't really mean that. It means Hades. But, but everyone now will be resurrected. And it says, in death and hell, we're cast in the lake of fire. So people who won't be able to be with Heavenly Father will suffer the second death. So in section 76, it just mentions that the people in the terrestrial and the celestial kingdom will not be able to be with Heavenly Father. And so in some ways, that would be spiritual death. They won't be able to progress, but they will receive a degree of glory. But we want to make sure we're found in this record of the Book of Life. So I think it's just super important we keep our covenants, uh, stay on the records of the church, keep family history, do a lot of family history work. And that'll help us so that we're able to help and, and be with the people of the, right, of the righteous in the millennium. Thank you. Hales, any additions to chapter 20? Not particularly. Thank okay. you. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just add quickly that verses 12 and 13, which talk about being judged according to the works of, of the people, these are among the verses that made uh, Martin Luther think, well, this book, Revelation, we probably shouldn't put that in the canon because it didn't work yeah. well for his <laughs> grace idea. Um, moving along, chapter, chapter 21. I, I'm just going to mention two things really quickly in, in the interest of time and then let you gentlemen say uh, wh whatever you would like to. Perhaps, for, for me, one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture is chapter 21, verse 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. I, I just, I, I love that verse. The, the other quick comment 
that I would make is, is about the New Jerusalem, which is formed and which <laughs> in, in verse 16 is a city that lieth four square and the length is as large as the breadth. And, and as you go on, the length and the breadth and the height are equal. And if you look at the distances involved here, 140 and four cubits, and, and you start to multiply those out, you, you have, um, if, if I did my math right years and years ago when I, when I did this, this is a city that's about 1,500 miles long and about 1,500 miles wide and about 1,500 miles high. And what, what, what do you get out of that? And I think the obvious answer is Zion is big enough for everyone. You're never going to be kept out of, of the city of Zion because there's no room. There will always be room for you as long as you keep the commandments. It's not a matter of space. There's plenty of space. It's a matter of whether or not you're willing to do God's will. Hales, you want to jump in? I guess to start with, building on your point, there's no space in which there's not a kingdom, and there's no kingdom in which there is no space. <laughs> um, <laughs> verse 7 I wanted to highlight. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Together with a number of other statements in Revelation, this is a clear statement of deification. Those who overcome through their faith on the Son of God will become like unto him and will inherit all things with him. And when it says all things, it means all things. It means all that the Father has and is. Wonderful point. Brent. That's beautiful. So in, in verse 1, we, we see that there is a new heaven. The earth is transformed. That's one of the articles of faith is that the earth will be transfigured and receive its paradisical glory. So we see that happening, that the earth actually passes away. There's no more sea part of it, apparently. And then it says the holy city actually comes down from God out of heaven. So I'm not sure exactly what this means. I know that some people have speculated this is where the where Heavenly Father comes also down and that the the earth and everything is prepared to receive now the Father and those people who are worthy to be with the Father. And it mentions here that all the things will be fulfilled in verse six. And it says that I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. So Alpha and Omega, of course, are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. I think this means all scripture will be fulfilled now and that will inherit the, the, the special, hopefully, status existence of our Heavenly Father. And we can, we can be his legitimate sons in verse 7. And so in a lot of ways, the church a lot of times is considered the bride. But we know that the Lamb, the lamb will also be involved in this, but I think this is really about probably Heavenly Father who is giving and sharing his glory with all of the faithful. And and like you mentioned, Martin, that we see that our Heavenly Father is, is, has a place big enough for everybody. In ancient Greek, the, the biggest number they really have is called a myriad, which is 10,000. And John is using bigger numbers than that. So I've always thought that probably what it just means for a Gentile is that these are just huge, huge, huge numbers that there is room for everybody. That's a really good point you made earlier. Thank you. Any other comments about chapter 21? Okay, let's um, quickly go through chapter 22. I, I'm just going to address one point, and that is the, the oft-raised criticism that oh, Latter-day Saints uh, can't possibly have new scripture. Why? Because in verses 18 or 19, it says that you can't add to or take away 
from the book of this prophecy, which is read by, shall we say, different Christian groups to, to mean the Bible. Well, the problem with that <laughs> interpretation is that there was no Bible per se when Revelation was, was written. When, when this book was written, the Bible, the New Testament in particular, had not yet been assembled. We don't actually have any record of a full-blown assembly of, of all the books in the New and Old Testament until about the, the, the fourth century. And, and so per, perhaps earlier, but certainly not at the close of the first and the beginning of, of the second century. And if you were to take this literally, you would have to say that everything after Deuteronomy is bogus because you have similar language in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, that, that you're not supposed to take away any, anything from the, the book. And so what's the real meaning of this? Uh, you, you have similar words actually in Codex Vaticanus, where one of the scribes has written something in the margin note, and he says, fool and knave, you know, don't change the wording. That, that's, yeah. that's kind of what's going on here. Somebody is saying, they, they, don't tinker yeah, they, with the words of this book. It's not yeah. that you can't have other books. Don't tamper with the text. Yes, yes. In ancient times, they have trouble with copyright. They don't really have copyright rules and so a lot of times in ancient texts you'll have like a pseudo Virgil, a pseudo whatever, pseudo Aristotle, mm -hmm. because later people will just say, well, I'm John and I'm just going to write my own work. And so a lot of the, the later Gnostic or, or Nakamati or some of these other writings are people who say that they're an apostle that are trying to, to add on or, or take the, the place or take the fame away from some of these apostles. And so that's a, a big problem in antiquity. For instance, you guys knew this, that this word e pluribus unum is a phrase we use in our government, but it just means uh, it's a salad recipe by pseudo Virgil that was written two or 300 years after Virgil. But this guy wanted to say he was Virgil and he was going to add on to Virgil because he was a great guy or something and wanted his fame. So it's just a salad recipe, one salad for many ingredients. But it, it comes from a a bogus guy who was pretending to be Virgil, but we can tell it wasn't Virgil because the handwriting and the language is from a couple hundred years later. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a great story. I had not heard that. That's great. Was it actually from a salad recipe? It's a, just a salad recipe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's a good way to describe federalism, right? So there one, one yeah. country for many states, but... Well, the, the meaning that we have, it, you know, from, from many, one, you know, meaning we all unite us. I, I, that, that's, that's nice imagery, <laughs> salad yeah. recipes. Anyway, that's great. All right. Um, any final comments for Chapter 22 as we wrap up the book of Revelation? Well, we just see finally this tree of life and verse, 12, uh, verse 2 in Chapter 22 it's going to bear 12 different kinds of fruits, and it's for the healing of the nations. And so we see that everything in the millennium and then after the millennium is taken care of. And, and finally, everybody worships the, the, the Lord. And, and so we know that this is ultimately what will happen, that, that Jesus and all the things that he said will come true. And hopefully we'll be faithful. We'll follow the great I Am, the great Alpha and Omega the first and last, verse 14, blessed are they that do his commandments. So we want to act, kind of like it mentions in the previous verses, that the final judgment will be on our works and what we've become. Hales, any final words about the book of Revelation? Well, I guess don't add stuff to it. <laughs> Anything else? But read it. <laughs> <laughs> but read it. There you go. Um, final comment for me is the book of Revelation is marvelous. Do not be dissuaded by its apocalyptic style of writing. It, it has some wonderful messages throughout, and they're very stark about the ideas of good and evil and, and which side of the fence 
you ought to be on and, and the blessings and rewards that you will get, which as Hales describes, deification. There's nothing more marvelous than that. All right, we will take a short break and return with our second hour of Interpreter Radio. We'll be right back. <laughs> 